Welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon. And folks, this is the big one. That's right. This is episode 11 of Shut Up and Wrestle. And it's one I've been kind of sitting on for a while and waiting on uh, because of my guest and the importance of my guest and how he's related to something that has occurred Uh, this very week as you listen to this. So let's just get it right out of the way. My big guest this week is Mr. Rob Van Dam. That's right, Mr. Monday Night, the whole effing show, whatever you want to call him, RVD, the man who points to himself and all that great stuff. Uh, He is the guest this week. And this is a conversation that we actually had a few weeks ago, I would say maybe over a month ago now, uh, but I was saving it. The reason I'm saving it is because this is also the big week for me. Uh, Rob Van Dam, uh, Rob contributed the forward to my book, which comes out this week. That's right. I've been talking about it since forever, and it is here. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, the biography of Ed Farhat, the original Sheik. The book has come out on April 12th which means it is now currently available. That's right. Forget about pre-orders. You can buy it. You can get it on Amazon.com, get it at uh, BarnesandNoble.com or at physical bookstores like Barnes & Nobles, if you can actually find one, or wherever you buy books, you can get Blood and Fire, and you can read the story of the original Sheik. Uh, This is a very big deal for me. I actually just had a book release party uh, near where I live in Connecticut earlier this week. And um, this has been, you know, like I said, I talk about it all the time, but this is a very exciting moment for me. It's been almost three years in the making uh, since I first came up with the real idea and the motivation to want to write a biography of one of pro wrestling's most kind of mysterious, hidden, mercurial figures being um, the Sheik Ed Farhat, somebody who was a major, major star in the business. I consider him the greatest heel of all time on a variety of metrics, uh, talking about drawing power, talking about the real fear and animosity that he provoked in people and for how long he did it in so many different places at such a high level, really the top heel in the business through most of the sixties and the first half of the seventies, at least. And then also doing it in Japan, Uh, just an incredible accomplishment really in his era. There were years where he was uh, second only to Bruno San Martino in terms of drawing power as a top star, wherever he went. So anyway, this was a book that I felt really needed to be done. It was a lot of hard work, obviously very far removed in time. So 
uh, tracking down people whose experiences I could learn from and record, uh, doing the research, going through the whole process. I'm incredibly grateful to um, ECW Press, uh, my editor, Mike Holmes, and everybody else there. You know, ECW Press is the real deal when it comes to pro wrestling books. They have a, a proven track record. And so I, uh, I, I just want to make it clear that uh, this, you know, this is my fourth book. And so far, this is the one that I've really put most of my heart and soul into. And I'm, I'm so excited that it is now available. I also want to say that uh, I'm going to be as well making available for sale autographed copies of Blood and Fire. Um, I have a shipment of books that I expect to be coming in uh, any day now. And so I'm going to be making these autographed copies available for sale. So if that's something that you think you might be interested in, uh, you can reach out to me. Uh, you can get me either on my Twitter or Instagram platforms at Brian R. Solomon. That's where I am there. Find me on Facebook at, at uh, Pro Wrestling FAQ. You can message me at that page. Uh, or, you know, my direct email, of course, Brian R. Solomon at yahoo.com. If you shoot me an email or, or just let me know if you'd be interested in buying an autographed copy, I can uh, let you know um, how we can make that happen. I take PayPal. I take Cash App. I take Venmo. I'm very modern. Or a good old-fashioned check in the mail, however you want to do it. But if you'd like one, reach out to me and we'll talk. But all personal plugs aside, let's now get to this big interview because this was a, this was something I was happy to do. I've known Rob and I've worked with Rob in one form or another going back to when he first came to WWE in 2001. So I was excited first that he agreed to write the forward to the book and second that he agreed to be a guest on the show and he was a really great guest. I think you're going to find this interview uh, surprising, fascinating, interesting. Of course, Rob's connection to the Sheik is that he was trained by the Sheik. He and Sabu were, were trained together, Sabu a little bit ahead of Rob but they were both trained by the original Sheik. And so he's got a lot of great experiences to share about that and other stuff related to his early years as a wrestler and a fan. So without further ado, let's take you to that conversation right now. Okay, so something very special today, and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce somebody that uh, really doesn't need an introduction, but since it's my show, I'm going to do an introduction anyway. Um, easily one of the most uh, popular, one of the most influential pro wrestlers of all time, uh, world champion, main event player in WWE, in Impact, of course, in ECW, among other places. Um, also happens to be the person who wrote the forward to my autobiography of the Sheik, Blood and Fire. And we'll talk about why he did that in just a little bit. Uh, so because this is a PG podcast, I'm going to say that he is the whole damn show. And of course, I am talking about Rob Van Dam. Yeah, sure. how goes it, dude? How's it going with you? Everything is excellent, man. I live up to the moniker. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything's uh, really good. Everything's uh, super excellent. Life just gets better and better. I'm very happy, and um, I'm pretty, uh, pretty stoked uh, for you to have this have this book out. Um, as as you know, I read a lot of books, and so, but I read them on my uh, on my Kindle 
you know, usually I, I have a huge collection of hardcover books and paperback books from before, from before I switched. But um, even though I want to reread a lot of them, I think I got I'd rather buy them again on Kindle, even though I have the, the damn books sitting on the shelf. I know what you mean. Uh, like wrestling books or just books in general? What do you like to read? Well, so for me, it's uh, for me, it's mafia. That's my <laughs> go. That's my go to nonfiction, La Cosa Nostra and Associates. And I have a, uh, a, a ridiculous collection and most of the books I've read several times and watch documentaries and that's been my that's been my go-to for uh several years now when i lived in la i got into hollywood history and uh, we were making the movie wrong side of town my only starring role and uh we had a studio at uh, sunset gower studios and started learning about the history like that intersection right there had you know the three major studios back in the day and um pretty awesome i just really got into hollywood history and that uh, that turned me on to uh, Bugsy Siegel, who was part of Hollywood history. And he made the trip to Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, I, I like Las Vegas history as well, but uh, pretty much uh, pretty much centered on the on the mobsters. Very cool. I didn't know that. And for those that don't know that might be listening, um, you probably know. But the character Mo Green in The Godfather is basically based on Bugsy Siegel. Yeah, I could I could go on for a while. I don't know how much you know about uh, Bugsy, but uh, a lot of people from the movie that Warren Beatty played Bugsy Siegel, you know, and he's there's a scene where they him and uh, the guy that's playing Mickey Cohen go out into the desert and there's nothing out there and he's just visualizing everything, you know, can't you see it? And that's not how it happened at all. He was already here in Vegas Bugsy was. Uh, he was downtown uh, running El Cortez. And uh, there was another guy, Billy Wilkerson, who was building the Flamingo. And Billy Wilkerson was a Hollywood entrepreneur. Um, he owned a bunch of nightclubs there. And he was a really, really cool character. But he ran out of money, went to some financiers, um, and they were associated with the guys that uh, had uh, financed uh, El Cortez for Bugsy, like Gus Greenbaum, Mo Sedway, and um, Mo. Uh, what's the other Mo? Well, you don't care. You don't need to know all that. No, no, um, that's, I love this stuff. This is like second only to wrestling to me. I know I that's a big <laughs> topic for me too. So anyway, okay. yeah. They, anyway, Bugsy came in and and, and bumped uh, Billy Wilkerson out of the way and finished the Flamingo before uh, before he ate one in nineteen forty seven. They always do, don't they? That's it. That's and what you have to look forward to. <laughs> you, got, you got to enjoy that life while you have it, because most of those guys don't die of old age. That's just the way it is. Right. But, yeah. uh, you know, the, the history of the mob, sometimes the history of wrestling kind of reminds me of that when you read about the old school territories and things, you know, and how they Absolutely. would. Yeah. It's really uh, fascinating to me. But uh, speaking of which, of course, um, we definitely want to talk a little bit about um, about the um, area that you grew up in, because it had a lot to do with how you got into wrestling. And so for people that are wondering why I asked you to to write the forward for this book, it's because for those that don't know, if there's anybody that doesn't know, I mean, you were one of the pupils of the Sheik. He he got you into the business, right? 
That is a hundred percent true. Yeah. I uh, had my mind made up already that I was going to pay a tuition, pay somebody to train me and was researching a bunch of uh, wrestling schools from this list that I had. And uh, I actually thought I was going to go to Killer Kowalski school in uh, Boston somehow I was trying to save money for that. And and then I learned about the uh, original Sheik uh, living 45 minutes from where my parents' uh, house was, you know, and where I was living. And, um, you know, the things that I wanted from a trainer, credibility, uh, you know, I wanted uh, it to be a big name, someone that has made that, you know, People can believe they must know what he's talking about. I want to, someone that's been around for a while, because a lot of the schools would just open up and take money and then leave. <laughs> and uh, anyway, he had everything. And turns out that uh, him and Kilikowski were both trained by the same guy, Bert Ruby. So that was a pretty good synchronicity. But he was training a dude that came through, uh, through the line when I was bagging groceries, struck up a conversation, and the guy ended up bringing me to, to meet the Sheik. It's funny to me because and we talked about this a little bit, even when, you know, we were talking about book stuff and I was asking you to do the forward is that, you know, unlike the other great pupil that the Sheik had that people know, which is his nephew, Sabu. I mean, if you look at Sabu and you see him, you would imagine that, yes, OK, this guy is trained by the Sheik. But but with you, I don't think that people would ever guess that in a million years, you know, because you guys couldn't be more different as as wrestlers, as performers, whatever you want to say. I mean, it's, it's, it just is not something that somebody I would guess, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I can see that because I didn't like take after his stock or anything. Um, but for sure he gave me the mindset, you know, to believe in the moment and believe everything that I'm doing. I mean, I'm, I'm so committed and I know that that's, what makes a big difference because I can see it when I watch uh, wrestlers that don't have that old school mentality. I can see uh, where sometimes they're, 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 they're thinking about being in the right spot or they're thinking about, you know, uh, what's going to, you know, being ready for the next thing. And um, you know, there is none of that. If you really, if you're really in the moment and you're, and that's, that's, that's the best way I can explain like a big, uh, a big difference in the way the the, the sheik uh, trained us. He didn't train us to do TV wrestling. He taught us to beat the crap out of each other. Yeah, and you know, it's like what you were saying a little bit before about how you know, or, or what I was saying actually when I introduced you. I I talked about you being very influential because I really think that you you were very influential and are. And there's a lot of guys that you know watched you and wanted to kind of get into the business and and sort of be like you. But, you know, what we've talked about is the fact that it seems like they're only a lot of times they're only copying certain aspects of what you do. And a lot of those fundamentals that you learned, that's not really something that they're as interested in. So it's almost like being such an influence can sometimes be a curse because you get these people that they think, oh, I'm going to be like RVD, but they really don't get what you're doing, you know? Yeah, that, that seems apparent. Um, I may or may not have told you, but back in 
93 when I started with All Japan, Stan Hansen used to give me a, a really hard time. And uh, he didn't like my style. Um, he didn't even give it a chance. And uh, he would he would talk about, um, you know, when we're going to go out there tonight because we'd, we'd be in a tag match, a six-man tag or eight-man. There's always a lot of, a lot of us teaming up. And um, we'd be talking to Stan would say, uh, you know, yeah, we're, you know, when we're out there, um, we got, uh, he would call me Claude. That's what, that was his nickname for me, you know, because of the bad day. He would say, yeah, he would say, um, uh, you know, Claude, uh, maybe Claude can do something with the, the, the young boy from their team, whatever, you know, and he said, tag me back in. I'll, I'll try and uh, get the people uh, to, to believe in us again. And you know, he would just make little comments like that, but he really, he really believed that because um, I was wanting to do backflips off the guardrail and stuff like that, but I was getting it in. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, something that you hold hands and, and walk through and count the steps at. It was stuff uh, that had to be compatible with everybody. And one time this was after I'd already been going to Japan for probably at least four years, Stan was uh, my opponent on the other team. And I had him in the corner gave him the uh shoulders you know about two or three shoulders did a back handspring and i ran at him did like a uh a, i don't know jumping kick to the face or something and after the match uh stan said i i gotta admit like i, I i've never seen that stuff up, up close before like you were you, you were just, you were right there one minute and then you just disappeared you went up i, I didn't know where you went you know and he's Everyone knows Sands blind as a bat, but the thing is, I won him over by him realizing, you know, that uh, that uh, my my stuff was legit. I didn't need I didn't need him to work around my stuff. I was get, I was getting it in. And I think that's the big difference, though, right? Because you're you're talking about, you know, he's somebody that's very old school. He's from a generation before you were in the business, but you kind of won his respect over because he could recognize your work and what you were actually doing. That's a big difference. I think from what we sometimes see now where it's the opposite, where it's the old school guys that for one reason or another are, are critical because they don't, you know, they don't see the basic fundamentals of, of, of wrestling going on in there. And they just, like you said, it's like a lot of, maybe a little too much cooperation and obvious cooperation going on. And it doesn't look like they're in a fight, you know, like you, you still made it look like it was a fight. That's the thing. Well, it was, it's the mindset, you know, when, uh, if everybody could do a few years in um, all Japan in the, in the nineties, when I did, there's no way that you can't have that competitive perspective because the Japanese dudes were looking to make you look bad. They were looking to doubt, not really sell your stuff that much. And if you were young and, uh, and cocky, they were looking uh, to, to humble you. And that was part of it. You know, um, Sabu and I, when Sabu finally came over there and I was, you know, climbing up the ladder some, we were wrestling uh, two Japanese guys for the tag title. Uh, for the, we were wrestling them for the position to challenge for the tag title. One of us teams was gonna was being groomed uh, to to wear the the titles, and before the match, uh, Sabu and I had a meeting, and Sabu says, uh, "You know, let's uh, let's try and blow them up, 
you know, make a bunch of quick tag. Just let's get one of them in our corner and try not to let them out. You know, just keep, you know, we'll just keep tagging in and out so we stay fresh. And, uh, you know, if you see him, like, trying to go over to the other corner, even if you're outside, just jump in and grab his foot. You know, don't let him make a tag. Um, and and this wasn't the, all of us talking. This was me and Sabu plotting. Um, and uh, and they were doing the same thing, you know, because we both really did want to outshine the other team. And we wanted to be in that position where we were getting the best push, the best money. And uh, that's missing nowadays. And now it is, you know, it's like maybe now it's more – appropriate for the the nerf world society that we live in because everyone's so sensitive because we're i mean come on wrestling when the sheik was there it was a it was a closed door society nobody got behind that door without getting uh you know beat up and and thrown out on their on their head um and it was still like that when i broke in but uh they everybody would believed in what they were seeing so much they that they rioted you know and and, and sheik was like like banned uh from new york for yeah. citing all of this it was and now now it's like a, a work-friendly environment you know what i mean it has to be an equal opportunity employment place <laughs> um and that's just that's society that's a reflection of the times we're in but it's changed things so much from the good old boys that could whack you with a chair for punishment if you were if you show up to the building late that's true i mean for better or worse obviously there's there's better about those changes but but there's worse too, you know, that there's less, I mean, a lot of times people talk about gatekeeping, you know, this, the concept being something bad, but I mean, it's not always a bad thing because back then they were trying to keep people out and that maybe didn't belong. And they were trying to make sure that you did belong before they let you in so that, you know, they were, they were protecting their livelihood. I mean, the Sheik was the greatest example of that of all. I mean, he, he lived it a hundred percent, you know? I do know he was all about commitment. And I think that's something that uh, Sabu and I both really learned from him. Um, you know, nowadays, uh, the fans think they know everything about wrestling and they think they understand how it works to the extent that they think they can do it. It must be easy. And then when I see WWE uh, bringing entertainers in, actors or whatever, taking bumps for them that furthers the belief that um it's that these these aren't the super people in the ring we used to be um besides the fact that if the average wrestler was 260 pounds in 1980 they're probably 180 now 185 maybe on average sure. um so of course fans think hey you know i can do this <laughs> and to me <laughs> Me, you know, that it's insulting just because of the career that I've had. And I've never in 30 years been handed a script that has a wrestling match on it. But I know that that's what fans think, you know, and I don't like to back up that 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 perspective, that you know, that mentality. Yeah, that I don't know if you've seen the the show, the new TV show Heels with Stephen Amell. You know, the show I'm talking about where it's supposed to be like it's like a territorial promotion. It's like a fictional wrestling promotion in Georgia. You know the show I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, they, they did like this fictionalized version of what, you know, was supposedly a territorial wrestling promotion was supposed to be. And there's two brothers that are running it. 
And the thing that everybody points out is that that's exactly what they have on the show, which goes to show what the average person thinks wrestling is, where the promoter or the booker is literally sitting there like writing out a script like he's writing a movie and he's like plotting out every little move on a script. And it's just like that is not at all like how it all works or, or how it should. If, if someone is doing it that way, then that's a big problem. I actually turned a part down um, for a movie recently. Uh, a friend of mine wrote the script. It's actually based on his true story, but um, and he wanted me to, to star in it, you know, and I'm not into, you know, in a position to really turn down starring roles and stuff, but the, the, the dialogue was very much like, like you're saying, and so, so much that it'd be looked at like I'm supporting that ideology and, and, and also fans wouldn't be able to separate the character I'm playing from the real me and my support. But wrestlers don't really talk like that to each other, you know, they're, like they do on heels or, the, you know, they're like, hey, um, they got you. Uh, congratulations. I heard they got you winning Friday night, um, to, you know, and you're going to get the belt, <laughs> you know. Right. Or, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of people going like, hey, I don't remember that being in the script, you know, and things like that, which you would never hear anybody say. Oh, you're not sticking to the script. <laughs> right, right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But um, I was going to ask, too, I, I wanted to mention, you know, because you were talking about how protective the Sheik was. And, and I want to make it clear, because I remember when you were telling me he was even kind of keeping you guys in the dark even while he was training you like like even to the point of still being in character a lot of the time right well you know uh to be a hundred percent in sheet character i guess he, he doesn't speak english and he would speak english <laughs> around us you know right. he would talk but he would he would remain in that edgy um angry about to fly off the handle at and, and run and choke us kind of uh kind of position you know he he maintained that and and by the way while he trained us there was never not one time ever any kind of lesson about here's the way to 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 fall right and distribute your weight so that um you you, you don't get hurt no forget that you, you're gonna get hurt there was no Here's how you punch somebody and, uh, and and take care of them and not hurt them. There was, there was none of that, and we weren't even punching each other though. It was it was all basic fundamentals. Uh, you know, we we would as long as we got right back to it, um, we could stray from it a little bit. But man, as soon as the one guy's shoulders are on the mat, the other guy should be on him trying to pin him. That's the way we were trained. Like, what are you doing? Looking? What are you flexing for? Get on him! Um, right. And and had us. You know, there was no ever, you know, when you suplex each other, you know, don't really drive each other through the mat. There was none of that. There was none of that. We, he would tell us harder, harder. You're not going to hurt him. You know, what are you doing? Lay it in there. That's all there was uh, the whole time. Which is also probably the way that he was taught too. You would have to imagine. So he was just kind of passing it along. Probably so. Um, yeah. So that's something that obviously nowadays, you know, if if uh, if you're too, if you give uh, too many potatoes, I think they cancel you and your career's over now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. the other thing too, it, isn't it? Funny though, because 
the thinking on that has really changed. And I mean, you know, I'm all for a safe workplace, of course, but it's just interesting to me how back then it seemed, well, like nowadays, it seems like it's the greatest compliment to a worker is that they're very light. You hardly feel it. And it, you know, you're going to be fine. Whereas back then it almost seemed like they wanted you to, to really lay it in and really like make it look good. And, you know, like that whole Johnny Valentine, Wahoo McDaniel, like this is not ballet kind of thing. That seems to have changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, there's also the, uh, the question, is it, is it a dance or is it a fight? And uh, there's never been a question about it from my perspective. I'm always in a fight and I know I'm in a fight, um, but some people, wrestlers will answer that the other way. And I'm thinking, as we're talking about the modern day wrestlers and, and what they're missing, I think more of them look at it like they're dancing together. Don't you? Yeah. And I think they see it more. I think there are some that basically see it as a form of theater and I'm not going to say, you know, obviously there's performance and you know, it, it can, it, it can be that, but if you're looking at it as that's mainly what it is, it's like, it's like basically an extension of being in the theater, like, except you're just, you just have to be more athletic then I think you're you're kind of missing the point a little bit. And, you know, hey, it, it changes, you know, whatever the business changes and the way people approach it change, because I guess the big difference now is, you know, the, the fans are in on it much more than they ever were. I mean, I know when I was a kid and when you were a kid watching it, I'm sure like we were in the dark. We didn't know. I mean, you watched it and you thought sometimes, well, OK, obviously this this is something's going on here but i couldn't really explain what it was and now you know people are in on it yeah for me for me ecw was a difference like that crowd was the first smart crowd that, that i knew of and they would all read you know back then before the internet it was uh, the uh, wrestling observer but the the fans would uh, be privy to information that the mainstream fans wouldn't be. And if you got pulled over at night or something happened to you uh, during the week, uh, domestic charge, whatever, they the fans were going to know. So it would just get written into the storyline, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they, they were so smart and on top of everything. So they they kind of, um, you know, they started that and um, and that made it more interesting, more adult things you know kind of started the whole attitude era but you know how many how many people that don't know about the business look at it theatrically from the outside and think like wow you know that that looks like that would be a lot of fun you know and i'm gonna um i have a really good name picked out for me or something and then when they when they realize that they're going to be humbled first and, and they got to first prove that they're not a pansy and that they'll come back after you uh, break their back <laughs> in the ring and not really literally, hopefully, but, right, right. But, you know, and I, maybe that's changing now too. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, but that's, that's always traditionally been, been the way. If you went in the business, you have to, you have to prove that you belong in the ring first. And that ECW crowd, I, I remember too, cause I mean, I was watching as a fan at the time that really was, you really hit on something there that was like the first kind of smart semi smart at least crowd work to the point where i think that it inf influenced fans even to this day where like you know they were the first fans 
that really started trying to take over the show, like, like chanting things that would, you know what I mean? Like trying to like influence the show, like fans never really did that before. And now that's kind of like part of wrestling where the crowd just has a mind of its own. Yeah, they were great. They were so entertaining. And uh, also they kept the pressure on because if you slipped or missed on something, they were going to let you know you messed up. Right. Messed up. Their version of that. that right. Was, uh, but uh, that was something to, to help shape my perfection, so to speak, because I did that, that first um, thinking that that could happen. And the best thing was getting them to chant, you know, like, holy stuff. Right. <laughs> I think we could say holy shit. I don't think I'll get in trouble for that. I don't know. We'll see. Holy shit. Hey, it worked. <laughs> but but, uh, but I do. I did want to go back because we were talking about, you know, being fans and, and watching as a kid and stuff. And even before you started getting into it and working with the Sheik and everything, um, you were you were a wrestling fan. I mean, right. You were watching the WWF back in the day, weren't you? Yeah, I started watching um, when I was 14 or 15 and uh, went to my first live show shortly afterwards. And that's when the seed was planted. Um, and I decided that I was going to be a professional wrestler when I grew up and started really focusing on fitness and nutrition. And yep. I know, I know um, you know, People talk have talked about this before, but there was the um, you were involved in one of the million dollar man skits in the ring, right? Where he was like, where you were a kid, and he was like, getting what was he getting you to like do some humiliating trick for money, right? One of those million dollar man skits. Yeah, exactly. He said he would give me a hundred dollars to kiss his uh, hot, stinky, sweaty foot, and I was just so excited to be in the ring that you know I didn't even try and negotiate. And that was the whole gimmick was you know I could have left with five hundred dollars. He was on the spot. If I would have said no, he would have said, "Well, wait, hold on. How about two hundred? How about three hundred? And he would have had to find the threshold. But uh, I was just so excited. I you know I was like Virgil, you want me to kiss your foot too? But that was when I was like uh, a, a really big fan and I was going to any live show that was within uh, two or three hours of Battle Creek if I could get somebody to take me. And uh, that was that could be Kalamazoo or Grand Rapids or Lansing or sometimes Detroit or Jacksonville or down to Indiana, South Bend. So um, I was uh, I was learning a lot. You know, sometimes I would see the same guys would be on the road wrestling the same guys, you know, and I would notice like uh, some stuff like that, you know, but um, I was, I was still a, a, a fan, you know, through and through. And you, um, when, when the uh, DiBiase thing happened, how old were you like 14 or so? I think you, I think so. Like uh, maybe 15, 15. So the, the funny thing is though, the ironic thing is, you know, you would later go and work with the Sheik who was, the icon of that region, but, and, and the man, I mean, he was the embodiment of Detroit wrestling, but by the time you were a kid and you were watching that stuff was already over with and the WWF had already taken over and that, you know, there was no more territory. Yeah. When, uh, when I first heard of the Sheik, you know, I had to do a little bit of a uh, homework. I wasn't exactly sure who he was, you know, and I was learning that he was a box office uh, sellout in the fifties and sixties, but I, I didn't know, you know, much about that era. 
Um, we also had a bulldog, Don Kent, lived in Battle Creek, and people always told me that he would uh, show up at the Kellogg Community College and uh, train the guys to wrestle. And I always wanted to run into him uh, during that time period, you know, trying to pursue my, my dreams, but I, but I never did. And, uh, you know, when I, when I met the Sheik, um, I had never seen him wrestle before. Yeah, Don Kent, right? I mean, even during the days when the Sheik was doing uh, big-time wrestling, he was one of his kind of inner circle, especially in the later years. He was kind of running the spot shows, and I and even then I think he was bringing new people in and things like that. So he, he was actually pretty integral to that territory even when it was running. Yeah, you know, I didn't even realize that there was other – organizations or leagues i didn't even understand there was an independent scene all we got was wwf um eventually cable it was called cable vision <laughs> it came to i remember cable, cable vision yeah <laughs> all right. um well that came to our our area and it came to our neighborhood but like my dad didn't get it right away you know and so i would i would uh watch and my neighbors, my neighbor had one neighbor had a satellite dish, and you know, different had cable, and I, and I was seeing these other wrestling organizations. It was blowing my mind because it was like alternate universes or something. You know? Right. I only had the magazines to go with on that stuff. It was because I didn't get cable in my neighborhood until like early '90s. I was already graduating high school, so I, I missed it all. I, I had a figure it all out later all i had was you know superstars of wrestling and wrestling challenge wwf that's what i knew yeah. when i was a kid same deal yeah. but yeah. Uh, did yeah. you uh, were you at wrestlemania 3 at the silver dome did you get to go to that yes i was uh there on a ticket uh friend of mine that i used to hang out with joe bigger staff his dad um lived in pontiac and worked there and uh bought some tickets so we got to go that's amazing. Did you how how were your seats? <laughs> uh, you know, I thought they were decent, but really, like they had a big screen above the ring, and I remember I could see there better than I could see in the ring. You know what I mean? Like I was on the on the floor as a, as opposed to not up in the stands, right? Uh, but uh, I think I was further back than I thought I was because, like, my ticket said, like, row 24. And I remember telling everybody forever I was row 24. But uh, later in life, I was thinking it was probably just 24 of that section because I've seen all the, the shots, you know, the, the aerial shots of that crowd. And I wasn't, I wasn't right up there. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes, you know, having floor seats in a big, huge stadium like that, if they're not really close, I mean, that could that could actually suck. I mean, it's usually a lot, a lot better to be a little higher up where you can at least look down on the ring a little bit. I mean, otherwise, especially in a place like that, it's easy to just get lost. Yeah, yeah. I, I've never been in anything close like the Pontiac Silver Dome. I couldn't believe how big it was from the outside. It just looked so big, wide, tall. And then once you go inside, you see that it goes down too. <laughs> like, yeah. like I didn't see a big crater um, as well as what I was seeing, you know, in the sky, but it was so big, you know, they had some elevate elevation to the floor uh, a bit, but, but yeah, you know, I, 
I don't really remember a whole lot. It was so long ago. I don't remember really like watching the, the, the ring as much as the screen. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know what that screen was like there, but one thing I do remember from going to shows around that time, like Madison square garden and things that it, it's not like today where those screens are awesome. Like you could really watch the sh- whole show on it. If you wanted to, I, I always remember back then the screens were terrible. Like they kept going out and going off and on and they wouldn't work. Right. And I don't know if that was just to the arenas I was going to or, or what, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, uh, went to WrestleMania two and, uh, by, went to i mean that i bought a ticket to watch closed circuit tv and sit in the crowd at the kellogg arena with a bunch of other fans and just look at a screen and watch wrestlers in chicago and la and we're we're in battle creek uh hang just like we were watching it live in person i did that for wrestlemania three and four and I wish that I could say that it was in at least in an arena. We went down to the local. It was literally the gymnasium of my elementary school. And they because they, they used to do WWF um, like really small live shows there. And all they had was a giant. It was like a one of those like, you know, fold out movie screens that they have in like a classroom when they're showing a movie. Like they just right. opened up one of those. It was really big and they just projected it on the screen and, and in this little gym. But that's how I saw WrestleMania three and four. Uh, yeah, man. We, uh, whatever we had to do to make it work. Right. We're old, Rob. That's what it is. We're old. <laughs> but I had no idea at the time that I would be, you know, in the WWE ring. Of course, I never heard of WWE. How would I know what that was? But I never, you know, I, even even when I started thinking like, hey, I'm going to do this and started like uh, making, directing my life towards that, I, I still don't, I couldn't have really imagined what all would it would entail. And, and by that, I mean, you know, um, influencing fans all over the world, having kids and other countries that I've never heard of that I'll never go to, um, you know, imitating me, pointing their thumbs at themselves and <laughs> just, you know, all the merchandise and just, just everything. It's uh, I, you know, I, I probably just thought like, uh, wow, it looks like, it looks fun. I want to wrestle and get paid for it. But um, it's really, uh, there's a lot that it encompasses and I'm sure that I didn't know that back then, but pretty cool to, uh, I have one friend that makes me think full circle all the time. He asks me questions that I never think about. And he said, uh, you know, when you were, um, I think he said, when maybe when I was in the ring, kissing Teddy Biasi's foot, did I ever think I'd be um, in the ring wrestling William Regal at WrestleMania 18 or maybe when I was at WrestleMania three, did I think I would be wrestling at 18, uh, which of course I wouldn't know, but that, that really is only like 15 years away. And it seems like I was a real little kid. So, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing to stand back and think of it that way. And also the, the road that it took was unusual because like you were saying, you you're watching the WWF as a kid and that's the only wrestling, you know, at one point. And then when you get to your career, it's like, you're, you're basically going everywhere, but there, you know, it's like, you're going, in fact, you were kind of one of the, the holdouts. Like you were in ECW longer than anybody when everybody was jumping over. And then you finally got there after God, how long were you wrestling for by that point? 10 years or something. 
Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't going to leave if there was any other choice, you know, and I, I appreciated that I had offers that, you know, made me feel wanted in a good position uh, to be in, but I really wanted ECW to blow up so we could all just uh, have a living and wrestle there with that freedom um, in and out of the ring. It was just, it was just awesome. So, um, but you know, when it, when it was uh, all falling apart, I left in uh, 2001. So I guess I'd been wrestling. Um, yeah. You know, 11, 12 years, uh, depending on when you, when you start counting. But uh, I, uh, I, at that point didn't want to go to WWE. Even when I did the, uh, the Monday night invasion, I did that for ECW, you know, to get ECW over, uh, we're going to be on, Monday Night Raw, and we're going to show our stuff, our extreme hardcore style. Yeah, I was all for it. And I had no idea that that, that Vince thought that I was moving over, and that's why he put me on his TV. I I found that out at the very end when I refused to go out and do a job because what was that going to do for ECW but make us look bad? And and then uh, Vince was saying, I never would have put you on my – tv if i didn't think you were gonna stay here long term and i had no idea but paul had set me up to burn a bridge um and and for me to appreciate being back home and ecw all at the same time that's that's kind of the genius uh, that he is but i i went there in 2001 um paul was already there and um, I went and did a movie in uh, Thailand, Black Mask 2, and I was like, cool, you know, I, I'm not going to have a hard time getting work or whatever. There was a point where if I wanted to continue being uh, a TV wrestler in America, there was only WWF, you know, he there, everything else was gone at that point. And so I kind of, you know, I mean, I knew there was, they were the top. I mean, I knew that it was a big deal, but at the same time, I kind of felt like, like my plan was defeated and like they were going to erase my past and make me some crazy character, you know, like they did with Skinner, Steve Kern or something. That's, that was on my mind. And so I was like, okay, well, it's time. It's either that or, or, or not, you know, not continue my career or go back to Japan. So it's a good decision. And I was super stoked when I did go and found out that I was going to be actually adding depth to my career by representing ECW on their big stage. So that's how it went down. It's funny you mentioned it that now that I think about it, they did let you keep your name and basically your identity. I mean, pretty much exactly the same, except maybe minus like, you know, four letter words or whatever, but, but I mean, they don't usually do that, but, but I guess they were doing that for some of the ECW guys. Cause they let Taz do that too. They just kind of changed the spelling a little bit. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the guys I've seen like my whole career, a lot of people are just afraid to rock the boat, you know, like they, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not proud to say this, but I know some people they've signed the contract and turned around and handed it back in without ever reading it. You know, and I, right. they just don't problem. Like, come on, man, that's your life. And so I think a lot of people are afraid to ask for things, you know, and they might say like, uh, you know, Hey, uh, when I leave, I want to take my name with me. And they might allow a lot more people to do that. If people stood up and, uh, and had that, you know, negotiated on their terms. Well, one thing I want to say, because I was, 
I was working for WWE at the time of this. I was there about a, a year before. And, and so and then I was there for the whole run that you had there uh, working for the magazines and for the website and stuff. And I just remember thinking, I mean, this is just my own view, but I mean, I, I was watching what was going on in your case. And I just had a lot of respect for you because I always felt like you had a mindset and this is me talking, so you won't get in trouble, but you had a mindset that was very different from a lot of the other boys, like they, who basically, like you were saying, a lot of wrestlers, they'll just do anything for money in a lot of cases. And they're, and they're, and they're more kind of flexible and, and money talks and, and they'll do whatever. And you seem to, you stood up for more than that. I, I, I have to say that, like you really, it was a rare quality that I found that you were, you weren't just immediately spellbound by, oh, WWF, oh, wow. You know, like you you had, you had kept your head on your shoulders, and I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, for better or for worse, you know. <laughs> sometimes, I mean, sometimes I'm sure that it was used against me, you know, just uh, by several times I stood my ground. I didn't want to do the romance angle with uh, – Stephanie when I first got there that they wanted to do because I had a really insecure uh crazy bitch wife and that was that was going to make my life miserable and um you know I didn't want to go overseas Iraq on our only 10 days off that we were going to ever have I remember uh, that. Christmas and yeah it happened a lot of times and a lot of the guys would come and go to me and say man Rob that's I wish I could say, no, I don't want to go either, but I'm not going to get away with it like you. So what are you talking about, Mike? I don't have a contract that says I get no heat no matter what. I just, you know, have balls. You you don't want to go, then, you know, don't go. We can say both. Yeah, that, that yes, you can. <laughs> that's what I, <laughs> that's what I mean, though. It was like you, you were, you were very down to earth. I always felt, which is why I, I have to tell a story of, of something that, uh, when I was working on the magazine, when we just started doing SmackDown magazine and I was the editor for that. And I have to say, I don't, you probably have no memory of this, but it's something that always stuck in my mind later. I always felt bad about, we were doing, we did a photo shoot, not the one that I see that you have up where it's with the palm trees behind you on the cover of raw. There was another one where we shot at a dojo in Costa Mesa. I don't know if you remember that. It yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was L.A. boxing. That's the one. Right. That's the and we, we were trying to go for like sort of like a Bruce Lee inspired cover, you know, and I remember that I was very I was just starting as the editor of the magazine. So I'd only had so much experience in like dealing directly with the talent myself and like organizing photo shoots and things. And I just remember like you were so nice to deal with. And so I felt so bad because one, one thing happened, which is you said to me, the one that the one request that you had was please, when the car comes to pick me up, just let me know, just give me a heads up. So I know the guy's out there and I know when he's out there, it's like the simplest thing in the world to do. And I completely forgot to do it just totally. And so I don't know how long the guy was waiting out there or whatever, but I remember you called me and you said, Brian, there was just one thing. There was one thing only that I asked you to do. Just call me. And and you didn't call me. And I just felt I felt so bad for like 19 years. So I just have to say I'm sorry. <laughs> Apology accepted. I actually have no recollection of that factor. 
I'm not surprised, but I'm glad in the same in the same token that you that you don't remember that. But um, anyway, um, I just so I guess we could the, the last thing I, I want to get into is just um, I'm talking about the to get back to the book to kind of come full circle again, because what my plan is that this uh, this conversation we're having is going to come out right around the time that the book comes out, Blood and Fire, which is April 12th. And um, so I just want to thank you again for even agreeing to write the forward, because I think it adds a lot to the book and, and people that pick it up and check it out. I think you'll kind of know what I mean, because there's stories in there that aren't in the rest of the book. And there's there's recollections and things. And not only that, but the interview that we did, you you told me a lot of stuff that I worked into um, the rest of the book of just your your experience just hanging out at the sheik's house and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm super grateful that you even agreed to do that. You know, dude, you did a great job on it. Like for real, I, I really enjoyed reading it. And, uh, you know, I haven't read, uh, the whole book. I can't remember, um, which, you know, I read quite a bit of it though. And I want to, I want to read the rest of it. And I'm looking forward to learning uh, so much. And I know it's not easy to, to write a book, and a lot of Arthur authors, you know, will take a certain narrative and then just find whatever evidence supports the narrative they choose. You know, that's why there's so many books on who really killed JFK, <laughs> you know, but that'd be, but wait, but what you did was, you know, you included all the different sources that have different uh, information and it just makes, it just adds to the, the nonfiction aspect so much. That's what I appreciate about it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a, you know, I'm a fact nerd. Like I like to know numbers and names and years and, and, and stuff like that. And so uh, it's really cool when I'm reading it to, to, to learn, even if there's like uh, something's like inconsistent or there's a contrasting view and, and just, just having the full story because then we can uh, imagine, you know, make our best uh, educated decision on all the information and just the way it's worded, the way it flows, everything it's, it, it's really good. Um, you know, can you imagine writing a JFK book where you include like every every different, you know, and you, <laughs> in the same book, you know, when you say that, uh, yeah, okay, there was a lone, there's a lone shooter, it was Lee Harvey Oswald, but then again, you know, so and so says it was Chuck Nicoletti, and so and so says, you know, it was this guy, that guy. Well, that's really the thing. Yeah, no, go on, go on. I just know it's a lot of hard work. You know, I haven't written my autobiography yet. I'm, I'm 51. And uh, um, that's something that's always been real important to me. And I've had other um, book ideas, too. And I've started some of them and gotten to certain stages of development and put them down. And maybe I'll pick them up again. Maybe I won't. But uh, I just appreciate all the work you put into it. And uh, it's going to be worth it because everyone's going to love this book. Thank you. You know, I, I mean, like you're joking about the JFK stuff, but it's true. It's like what I a lot of those books are written by and this is nothing against them. This is the purpose of, the, of their book, but it's written to put forward a specific view about something or a specific theory. And I was really trying to be agenda free with this book. And, you know, there's times when it's not the most complimentary because I'm getting into negative aspects and personal demons and things but where I felt like it was crucial to the story, but I just wanted to tell the whole story as much as I could. And unfortunately with somebody like Sheik, 
who never gave an interview in his entire life, obviously, a lot of times you do have these stories where we may never know what the actual thing is. You know, somebody said one thing, somebody said another thing. And so all I could do other than just kind of pick a side is to just tell people that, tell readers that, hey, look, I honestly don't know what the true story is here. I'm not going to pretend that I do. I'm just going to tell you what people think happened, you know? Yeah, I really appreciate the way that comes across. There was a there was a specific thing in there where this rumor that I kept hearing because I was trying to have an open mind and not have this preconceived story in my head already so that if things contradicted it, I could just roll with the punches. There was this story people kept telling me, and I guess it originated with George the Animal Steel because George the Animal Steel was another uh, early trainee of the Sheik and then came obviously to work for Vince and was not only a wrestler, but an agent and all this stuff. And the, the story that a lot of people were saying was that Vince McMahon had had a meeting with the Sheik when he first came to Detroit for the first time and was trying to offer him a job. And then some people were saying that he was humiliating the Sheik, like he made him get down on his knees and beg for a job like this really over the top thing and i'm thinking in my head i really doubt it really happened this way but you had some people saying no it wasn't like that at all it was just a friendly conversation and then you had other people saying no there was never a meeting they never met it never happened so i just thought it was a great story but i don't know what really happened so i just put every version in there together yeah yeah you know Sheik told us um that he had definitely met him and that he uh he told us that uh, Vince stayed with him uh, for a while um and that he was a snot-nosed brat <laughs> see i see i heard a story like that and i wasn't sure what to make of it i think even sepu had said something in his book where um the sheik was like literally babysitting vince as a kid like i don't know is is that what you're talking about i yes and That's and crazy and it's something that Sheik told us, and uh, and he was—I think he was saying it in a, in in a way to reference that he doesn't ever hear from him anymore. You know what I mean? Right. Like that was—I think that's how he was. Like, yeah, he said, you know, you know, I took care of this kid for several weeks, stay in my house, whatever, you know. And then, um, and then, you know, he felt like. I think he maybe he was ostracized, you know, I don't know if it was the New York thing or WWF thing or a McMahon thing. But um, there was I have a I have a memory of them, you know, being not on good terms from something that that happened in business. And you probably know more about. No, I heard a lot of stories like that where there was sort of like a really personal grudge and that might have been why he never used him and you know because i think the sheik had a he had a decent relationship with vince's father and he wrestled for him but i think i think it kind of deteriorated and then they really didn't get along because if you when i was looking at the sheik's career i noticed that he stopped wrestling for the mcmahon's like pretty early in his career i mean not early but like at the peak of his career like in the early 70s so I, i i definitely got the impression that there was bad blood and there was like some kind of a professional issue or whatever. But I never, I never got a hundred percent the full story. Like even Sheik's son, Eddie Jr. had his version of it, but I didn't know how much of that was necessarily true or whatever, but there was some kind of, some kind of bad blood for sure. 
Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we uh, probably won't know ever. But no. uh, I do. Know, I do know that Vince, you know, thought a lot of the Sheik. I remember when uh, there was a day when Sabu was to do some uh, promos, and Sabu was really uncomfortable with it. He didn't talk like his uncle. He wanted to stay true to that. That's his character. Vince was talking about, um, you know, you, you're going to be worth a lot of money, but, you know, I need you to say a few words. And and uh, he used Sheik as a reference um, to, to tell Sabu, you know, that uh, uh, that he was he compared Sabu to Sheik. I can't remember word for word what he said, but he was like, you know, just like the Sheik, you have that look in your eye. You know, and, and he's, he's just like, you know, that's it. it's just, you know, it's it's a gift. You're worth money. And, you know, he, he wanted to do some stuff with Sabu, but he wanted Sabu to to talk. And I agreed, you know, that that took a lot of mystique away from Sabu. He only had him say, like, one words, you know, like at a time, like, homicidal. Homicidal. <laughs> but even that he wasn't comfortable with. And I was there to try to mitigate in between the two of them and make it work because that comfortable with me there but um I, but i but that you know when when vince said that he said it in a way that made me think that they did work together like something about um how how i don't know if he said this but i thought they said something about that he you know uh made a lot of money with uh with with chic which maybe that wouldn't make sense but um, well I mean, the family did for sure, because there was um, and Eddie Jr. told this story and it was true from what I could find where, you know, when the WWF business was hurting, like in the late 60s, they they just were kind of having some bad times where they were really only selling out the garden and nothing else where the sheet came in as a favor. And I don't even think he got paid. He just did it as a favor. And he main evented with Bruno San Martino, like all over the circuit and was selling out everywhere for, you know, like six months or whatever. And apparently th that he was grateful to Sheik for that, for sure. Cool. Man. Yeah. yeah. Makes me miss him. I wish I could uh, ask him to tell me some stories about working with Bruno and a lot of these things, you know? Well, it's great that you and Sabu got to induct him at least in the hall of fame. I mean, you were both there at the same time working for the company. I was there for that in Detroit. I thought it was a cool moment, you know, having you get to do that. And now the, the greatest part of it is then you also went in the hall of fame too. I just thought that was very nice how that worked out. True. Yeah, that is, that is nice indeed. And it says a lot, uh, I think for, uh, for the, uh, the Sheik family. Yeah, definitely. All right, Rob. Well, this has been fantastic. And I'm like this, this whole period with the book coming out and us getting to kind of talk about the book and talk about the chic in general and like me to finally get closure about leaving you hanging at the photo shoot 20 years ago. You know, I just think it's all been really great, Rob. Dude, I, I was pissed. <laughs> See, that's a much better story if you say that, right? That you remembered it all this time. You hated me the whole time. It's much better. Yeah, but uh, all is forgiven, and uh, and I enjoyed the conversation, and I look forward to the book, and uh, I hope that it's very successful. I definitely will help you uh, push it, do anything I can, uh, and it's easy for me to uh, talk good about because I'm only honest. I'm only honest, and it's an awesome, awesome book. You did a great job, like I said. 
Thank you, Rob. That is extremely, extremely appreciated. Cool. There you have it, folks. Rob Van Dam, truly one of the greatest of all time and a pleasure to have him as a guest on Shut Up and Wrestle. Thank you once again, Rob. And I want to point out to want to make it very clear here because, you know, we all know that a lot of times with not just wrestling books, but a lot of um, books about famous people and whatnot, that when you have a, a forward or a prologue, that's purported to be written by a celebrity, let's say. Um, a lot of times it's not really written by that person. We know that it's ghost written or uh, with their approval and sometimes even not even with their approval. They're just giving permission to use the name. And I want to make it clear, this was not one of those times, okay? Rob wrote this forward from the heart, 100%. I proofread it, you know, because I'm a total anal retentive stickler for you know gr grammatical mistakes and what have you. but. It was Rob's words. It was Rob's ideas and Rob's uh, memories of the of the Sheik in the forward, uh, in his own words, not rewritten in any way. So that is uh, actual, real a shoot. So uh, as I've said, that is the forward for Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. As I said at the top of the show, you can pick it up now. You can order it online on Amazon, or if you'd like. One of those autographed copies that I am selling, of course, as I said before, you can reach out to me. Uh, my email address is Solomon at yahoo.com. You can reach out to me and we can talk about that. Um, in the meantime, I hope you're going to keep listening to the Shut Up and Wrestle podcast. Uh, we have so some more great guests coming up in the weeks to come. I I've mentioned it. Uh, I think last week, but I'm going to have as my next guest next week, David Marquez, whom a lot of you may know most recently from his work with the NWA, of course, and on NWA Power. But he is also a longtime promoter, businessman, producer, director, booker, you name it, uh, in the pro wrestling business, a lot of great experiences. And this conversation that we had uh, was so much fun and so interesting for me. So I'm I'm thrilled to be able to share it with you next week. I've also got coming up uh, wrestling writer, longtime wrestling writer, Denny Burkholder. He's going to be a guest. Brian Greenberg, who was the cinematographer for the original uh, Chic movie, I Like to Hurt People, back in the 1970s. He's going to be coming up as a as a guest on the show, as well as Stephen Bell, who's the author of the new book that's coming out about the British Bulldogs called Dynamite and Davy. So as you can hear, some great, interesting guests coming up. You can find our podcast, Shut Up and Wrestle, at suawpod.com. You can also get it on Spotify, get it on Google Podcasts. Get it on Apple Podcasts or Podbean or wherever you get your podcasts. It's easy to find and maybe listen to some of the older episodes. Let me know what you think. If you're interested in reading my articles, of course, in magazines, remember those? Um, issues of Pro Wrestling Illustrated can be picked up at getpwi.com. Proud to be a member of the staff there, as well as the UK uh, magazine Inside the Ropes, which you can purchase online at insidetheropesmagazine.com. If you're looking for me, as always, you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. 
You can find me on Facebook at the Facebook page, Pro Wrestling FAQ. I put up a lot of wrestling content on that page, so it's a great way to keep up with me. Also, on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author webpage, which I try to keep up to date as much as my schedule will allow. So, as always, this has been Brian Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in. And reminding you that in the Valley of the Blind, the one-eyed man is king. So long, wrestling fans. 